So if you will, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 29. 1 Samuel 29, you'll notice that we are coming to the end of this story. My current plan is to go through the pastoral epistles after we finish 1 Samuel. Pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and then the book of Titus. So let me encourage you to begin reading of those in your own time. And as you read with your families, that you would consider these books, what they have to tell us as a church today. Very, very important books for the church today and often neglected, sadly, as well. So we will be going through those when we finish this um, story in the next few weeks. So before we come to the text today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this story today in your word, we are reminded that it's not simply a story of people who lived long ago, but it is a story of your family. It is a story of the ones that have, through the generations, had faith and who waited for your coming. And so we, as we read this story of redemption, we look forward to you. And we look back at what you have done for us as well. And we are thankful. And so, Lord, help us as we come to this story to know that it is your word. It has authority over our lives. And it speaks to us. Lord, help us to be molded by it, to be convicted of our sins, and to be led to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so as I read this story, it reminded me of a time several years ago. It's probably, what, 2013, fall of 2013, summer, so about four years ago. Uh, this is before we began meeting together. And um, while we were still looking for possibilities of full-time ministry positions, different places, one of the places that we interviewed was in Jackson, Mississippi, And I was interviewing there as an associate pastor of youth ministry, uh, even though I'd said I'd never work in Mississippi again. Uh, Mississippi's probably a great place. Uh, it just didn't match well with me. Uh, even though I said I'd never work there again, here I was, headed straight for it. Everything was going very smoothly in the interview. All the leading up process to this went, you know, pa interviews for new pastors are lengthy and uh, unnecessarily drawn out. Um, But I liked their pastor. I liked the, the, there were signs of health in the church. Um, but there were also some warning signs that were, that should have piqued my interest that I received over and over again. But because I really wanted a full-time ministry position, really wanted it, I overlooked them. Continued on with the interview and the course, and we attended worship the next day. Our kids were a lot smaller. I think Jenny was probably three. Uh, Kate had just turned six. Um, and so church in a strange place was very interesting. I was already um, past sensory overload, which if you know me, that doesn't take very long. And the kids were running in circles around us, you know, as we were talking to people and shaking hands and having to smile a bunch. And so then we got asked to go out to lunch afterwards to eat outside in Jackson, Mississippi in September, um, which is we might as well have been in the jungle Uh, it was that hot. 
And so that was it. There I sat with about 20 people interested in what I would have to say, and guess what I said? Nothing. I tried to keep my kids behaved. I tried to keep myself from being panicked, and that was it for them, too. They were not interested in someone who was going to just be quiet the whole time and wasn't going to pretend to be happy. And so everything was great up till that point. And then after lunch, they stopped talking to me, and they sent me a letter, actually, like, didn't want to call me even a sorry it's not you letter in the mail. So what does that have to do with the story today in the Bible? Is this just me recounting my bad history? No, it's not. Sometimes God knows better than we do. All the time he knows better than we do. And even when we think we know what's best, right? We think we, we know what's best. We get ourselves into these situations that we soon, that are soon out of control, and God still delivers us. He still takes care of us. He took care of the Chipman family that day. We are still here. We're still in Murray. We're serving a church that we love. We are teaching school, which we both get to do together down the hall from one another. We love it. We don't want to do anything else. Had I attempted to figure it out on my own, I'd likely be looking for another church now and be moving again. The Lord is good for us, even when we didn't know it was good for us. And so David, in this story today, finds himself in a very similar situation. Remember, we learned about him taking up residence with the Philistines a few weeks ago, and now he's about to march off to battle with them. Well, today, the battle is at hand. Achish, the Philistine king, can't see or can't wait to see his star soldier in, uh, in fighting against the Hebrew army and to slaughter them. And so what is David going to do? How is he going to get himself out of this mess that he has put himself into? Well, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at it in two main ideas. God's providence delivers and God's mercy pursues. And so with that, let's look at the text together, 1 Samuel 29. Let's stand together today as we read from God's Word in honor of God's Word. 1 Samuel 29, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites had encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down to us with battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in the dances? David has struck down his thousands and or Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called, called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, 
and to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you will, may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord and king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as the angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as a quick review, David uh, went to the Philistine king and basically requested asylum in the land of the Philistines. We know that David didn't do anything wrong. He was a criminal only because Saul, the king, thought he was. And so David was essentially running for his life, and he did that in the Philistine land. Uh, we, we talked about what I perceived and what many commentators have perceived to be a lack of faith for David running from Saul since he had no evidence to suggest that the Lord was going to stop protecting him anytime soon, was he, that he was going to make good on his promise to make David the king, but David ran anyway. And we're told that David was there for over a year there in the land of the Philistines. Achish, the Philistine king, had appointed David to his personal bodyguard. And they were now going out into the battle against the Hebrews, which providentially is the same exact battle that Saul is marching off to as well. And Saul knows that he's going to die in that battle. It's interesting how this has all kind of come together at the end. The author of the book has chosen to craft his work in such a way as to bring David and Saul together along piece by piece. And that's not to say that the author is making up this story. I'm not saying that. But he is writing it in such a way that we might kind of bring these characters along together and see this climax all at once, switching these stories back and forth, as it were. But for now, we're going to deal with David's dilemma. We marched... Saul off in the middle of the night last time, if you remember. Uh, we know the end of the story, but there is real tension here. Is David going to fight against his people? That's a big question for us to ask here. And so the first point then is God's providence delivers. So at the very beginning, the battle lines are drawn there. The Philistines are gathered at Aphek. The, uh, the Israelites are gathered at Jezreel. And they're all taking their places, and you can kind of imagine in, the, in this time there were lots of regional lords, and so each regional lord had their own army, and they were all marching into place. And so as the Philistine lords were taking their place, they all walked past David and his men as they're taking their place, and they note that, well, why is David here? Why are these Hebrews here is what they say. 
They're not happy with it. They think that David's going to turn against them in battle, which wouldn't be good for them. They even recall the song, right, that David has killed his ten thousands. Achish tries to stand up for him, but it doesn't surprise us, and it shouldn't surprise us, that he thinks highly of David. He, he doesn't know about David's raids that went on. No one does, because remember, David killed everyone. But he thinks very highly of David. But the lords of the Philistines wisely, I think, saw this as a problem. They saw David turning on them in battle. They think it's probably to appease himself to Paul or to Saul. He says, how else could he do this but with our own heads? He's basically saying he's going to present our heads to Saul in order to redeem himself. And he, again, like I said, he quotes from this uh, hit record of the day. Uh, apparently now there's dances even made to it. It says that, um, verse 5, is this not David whom the, they sing one another in their dances, uh, that David has killed his tens of thousands? Um, catchy tune. I'm sure that made Saul just thrilled to hear that over and over. Um, so Achish, what does he say in response to this? Well, it seems right that you should be with me, but go back peaceably so that you won't upset the Philistine lords. And I think at this point, David kind of stands up for himself. He's like, well, what have I done? I want to go off to battle with you. Should we be convinced that David really wants to go to battle against the Hebrew people? I don't think so. I think David is really hemming it up here, so to speak. I really want to go. Why don't you like me? I don't think David wanted to go. He's just selling himself again. So David gets away in this situation, completely unharmed, heading back to the city that was set aside for him by his enemies for his safety. And his enemy marches off to fight against his other enemy, Saul, in order that he might secure his kingdom. It's fascinating the way this story has worked out, the spin that the Lord has put on things. And by spin, what I mean is that he's completely orchestrated it, governed every person and all their actions in the midst of it in order to bring about his good purposes. So what do we think about this, or what should we think about this? Is David one of those people who always seems to get away with everything? You guys know those people? Like nothing ever goes wrong, that everything always goes right. It doesn't matter what sort of pickle they get themselves into. They seem to come out unscathed. Is David one of those people? Well, you don't have to read far into Second Samuel to see that that isn't the truth. Did David deserve to have God untie this major knot that he had gotten himself into? Is that what's going on here? Well, hardly. We know that's not the case. Though he was God's chosen king for Israel, he's in no way above reproach uh, or above the discipline of his creator. And again, we're going to see that more and more as we go through his story. So what is it? This made me think of Psalm 23, and you guys are familiar with Psalm 23. One of the lines in Psalm 23 says, uh, says of the Lord, the shepherd, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Is this not exactly what is happening to David? 
Why would the Lord get David out of this trouble? Because he loves him. Because he's his deliverer. Because he is able to do far more abundantly. That's what Paul said in Ephesians. Far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. He's orchestrated this whole ordeal in order to get David to safety and have these two armies still fight one another. So what about for us? I think we can definitely relate with David here. Uh, not that we have, you know, kind of sold ourselves into a foreign army or anything like that, but we have definitely all gotten ourselves into situations that seem insurmountable once we have gotten ourselves into them. I think as a kid I can relate with this, thinking about, you know, telling one lie and then having to tell another one and then another one and then all of a sudden you're just this made up make believe story. Everything about you is, and then it all comes crashing down on you. It's hard to get out of that. Well, as an adult, what do we have? Maybe it's a besetting sin that we can't seem to shake loose, some sort of thing that we continue to go back to because we are convinced that it is better than Jesus, some sort of sin. Maybe a relationship that isn't good for us, a business relationship, some sort of social relationship, or just something in general, some sort of activity that we're in, or some, something that's not healthy for us, but we're in so deep that it's so hard, it would be hard for us to get out because it would just undo everything and it would be to our ruin. Can you imagine David having to fight his way out of this situation? It wouldn't have been good for him or his men. For me, well, you heard of one. It was these several church positions in a row that I continued to interview for that would have been horrible for us, for me and a family. But each time I thought, I want to go there because I just wanted to go someplace because I was convinced anything was better than what I was doing. Because I didn't trust what the Lord was doing in our lives. And again, don't hear me comparing other churches to the nation of the Philistines. I'm not doing that. But for me, it would have been tantamount to that. Something that I thought was a good idea in my own wisdom that the Lord in His goodness somehow delivered me away from. We all have that kind of situation, or have had, or will have. Something that we think is right in our own eyes, and we are in so deep that only the Lord can orchestrate it to get us out of it. And He is good, and He does that. He's good to us. And so how should you handle, I think this is important, how should we handle situations like this that seem out of control to us, that seem like there's no way out? Every sign seems to be pointing that we're not going to get away from it, that it's just going to last forever, like a sin or, or some kind of something that's going on in our lives. Well, a few things I think would be helpful. We should definitely seek the counsel of others. We don't see David doing that here necessarily, but it doesn't mean that it's not right for us to do so. David probably should have sought counsel before he moved to the Philistines to begin with. David's answer was kind of dictated to him, was it not? He was basically given a decision. Here, go back and be safe. Okay, I'll do that. We might find ourselves in those situations, hopefully before it escalates, 
seeking the counsel of others is oftentimes the best option that we have. We should do that over and over again. First and foremost, whom should we seek? Well, we should seek the counsel of God. How do we do that? Through the counsel of his word and through meditation and prayer. Scripture is powerful. It transforms our hearts and our minds. I think in particular of like a besetting sin, some sort of sin that you can't shake yourself of. When someone has come to me and said, I can't get this, I can't get rid of this, I continue to go back to this. My first question is, tell me about how often you're in God's word. Because what does God's word do for us? It changes us. It changes our hearts. This besetting sin presents a need that only Scripture can treat. Scripture shines light in the darkness. It exposes sin. And when sin is exposed, it shrivels and it dies. It cannot live in the light. Jesus shows us that, right? He came to shine a light into the darkness of sin, to remove the curse. And so simply by revealing light on it, we can see that sin shrivel up. Prayer is good as well because it orients our position before God, meaning that we are reminded that He is the clever one, not us. We are in constant need of His wisdom, of His deliverance, because we, like like sheep, continue to go astray. You've probably heard that as a Christian also, as a Christian we are saved, yes, but we are also being saved. If you've heard that, meaning that we are saved by the righteousness of Christ once and for all, yet he continues to work in our lives to transform us more and more to be like him in heart and mind. And so in these situations, I think that in these situations, he is literally... He keeps saving us from our enemies, from ourselves, over and over again. Now, to be sure, let's understand this, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes when the cat climbs up the tree, it falls out. It doesn't get saved. Sometimes we have to face our consequences. Sometimes that besetting sin catches up to us. It's exposed in an uncontrolled manner. Sometimes those bad relationships end up hurting us or others. Does this mean that we are any less saved or any less taken care of? Absolutely not. It just means that our growing in Christ gets to take a different form. Uh, And this should cause us more and more to cry out to the mercy of God. If you ask me, we need it. We can't live without it. And that is our next point, God's mercy pursues. If we read this too hastily, this this passage, I think we might miss this little gem again that the author left for us at the end of the chapter. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is Achish telling David what to do. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, contrast that with 28, verse 25, the end of Saul's, the the last bit of Saul's story that we had. 
Remember the lady, the medium, made a big supper for Saul and his people. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they rose and went away that night. They went out at night. Do you think it was a happy going out for Saul and his men? Do you think it was a happy going out for David and his men that morning? Can you imagine the contrast? David and his men were glorifying God that they had escaped imminent danger. Saul and his men walked out to what they knew was imminent death. For Saul, there was no mercy, only the promise of judgment, coming face to face with the fullness of his sin and what he had earned before a righteous God. For David, he received mercy. Mercy, by definition, has nothing to do with the receiver. It is the giver who gives mercy to the one who deserves much worse but doesn't receive it. So for David, it goes all to the glory of God. The morning is symbolic of the words that he penned. Again, Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow after me. Or as as Todd pointed out last week, should pursue me, a much better translation, all the days of my life. The prophet Jeremiah said also this, same idea, Lamentations, a very popular uh, verse in Lamentations chapter 3, 22 and 23, says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new when? Every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so I love this contrast of David going out in the morning, experiencing the mercies of God anew. Saul going out into the darkness of night, experiencing the judgment of God. David was allowed to walk back to Ziklag, his army intact, completely unscathed. And we'll discover next week that he has some trials and that arise on the way home. But even in those, the Lord's mercy is going to be abundantly apparent to us. He continues to guide his chosen king through life so that David seems to be flawless to us. But we know he's not. And David, unlike many who would come after him, is quick to give glory to God for his prosperity over and over again. We read the Psalms and we see that over and over again. He knows, but for the mercy of God, he might have died many, many times or been found out for his various schemes many times or had to face the consequences of his sins many times, but he didn't because of the mercy of God. Why does God protect this David? Well, let's turn to Psalm 89. And this pairs well, very well, with our catechism question for today as as well. Psalm 89, 1 through 4. It says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known the faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. 
You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's incredible. If you're David, this is the promise that you hold on to. But this is also where we come in, right? We are the result of this steadfast love, this covenant that he made with his chosen one, his established throne for all generations. Yes, we know that David for a time sat on this throne, but who ultimately sits on this throne? Who is the one that he ultimately made a covenant with on our behalf? That is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom the Father made a covenant with so that he might bring his people home through the greatest act of mercy ever known. And it's, and is this mercy, is it left hanging? Is this a mercy that we have to search for as his, as sinful people? Is this a mercy that we have to search for, discover among many other options that are out there for possible mercy and salvation. No, this is a mercy that pursues us, is what Scripture tells us. It calls us by name. The one who calls the stars by name is also the one that calls his lost sheep by name. And they hear his voice, and they come to him, and he leads them. He came to save his children, and he did just that, and he continues to do just that. He did not stop. So our Savior satisfied divine justice with his death and resurrection, and now what is he doing for us? Preparing us for life eternal with him by transforming us by his perfect word. It's the mercy of God that endures forever. We read this over and over in Scripture we read that in our call to worship. We read this here in Psalm 89. It endures forever. And it's that that will continue to praise even when we are perfected with him in glory. When we're in heaven with him, what are we going to praise about our Lord Jesus Christ? That he is merciful to us. That he gives us mercy over and over again. So in conclusion, God is good to his people. He's good first and foremost by sending Jesus Christ to save us undeserving sinners and by continuing to deliver us as undeserving children. And he does it again and again and again, and he deserves nothing more than our praise and glory for that. And so, church, let us consider those situations, those circumstances of our lives that may not be good for us, let us seek out counsel from the Lord himself and from one another. We can't do this alone, and we're reminded of that constantly in this text. Even though, or even the mighty David needed a way out, and it was provided for him. And so how do we get to that? We cry out to God for mercy, that he might deliver us from ourselves, as it were, many times. That he'd be merciful to us. That we might grow and learn as believers. And that for those times that we have to deal with our consequences, let us praise him anyway. Because he prepares a place for us even now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for You. You saved Your Son, David, back in this story, and You continue to do the same now because You never change. You always seek out Your people. You pursue them with Your mercy. You deliver them over and over again. They are Yours. You hold them in high esteem. You came. You sacrificed Yourself for them, you traded your righteous robes for their filthy rags. And you do it again, but you don't have to. Your blood covers us now. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to live in light of that, that we are yours. We are righteous in your sight because of what you've done for us. And Lord, help us to live in light of that, to seek after you and you alone when it comes to the situations of our life, and to cry out to mercy and for mercy when we need it, which is always. It's in your name we pray. Amen.